The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour. Will a new month for your money bring the same amount of volatility or could stocks start to stabilize? We discuss and debate that with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour today, Liz Young, Steve Weiss, Joe Terranova, John Ajarian, the co-founder of Market Rebellion. Com. It's 12 noon. Let's take a look at the markets here, see what we're doing today. We're at session lows right now. Dow's down by 378. S&P's off one and a quarter percent, 4,080. Nasdaq's given up 12,000, uh, 11,941. That's a loss of 140. That's more than 1%. Yields inching up today, uh, 293. Uh, interesting action today, Steve Weiss. We, we turned negative on the Bank of Canada raising rates. Yields shot up a little bit. I thought we started to take a little bit of a turn more negative on Mary Daly. I thought she was I thought she was pretty uh, aggressive in, in her view for where rates are going um, from here. And maybe you can point to some other factors, which I'll get to in just a second. But new month, same volatility or what? I believe it is. And actually, I foresee uh, the volatility increasing. When Rich Stapstein came on last week and said he was selling, that he was more negative, and I put, put on some exposure, uh, I said I'm even more negative than I was because how sanguine everybody seemed to be. But June 1 starts the pairing of the Fed balance sheet. So at first, it's going to be $17.5 billion, $30 billion. Then it's going to double in three months. That's going to tighten credit. It's going to tighten monetary conditions, and that's going to lead to increased volatility. So I think now that we have May over, now that we're into this, going to a Fed meeting on June 14th and 15th, I believe it is, that we're going to see increased volatility. So I'm back to where I was in terms of my positions. Slightly higher, actually, but back to where I was. As I mentioned in the note to producers last night, I sold my VOO, the SMH, and the Qs. You did. So, yeah, last night, I don't know, it was like four-something, you sent an email uh, to the folks here and said you did sell the positions that you put on just last week. So, I mean, I think you made it clear at the time that you were a renter, if you will, uh, not an owner of those positions, and, and you gave those up. I, I also want to discuss, Liz, these comments from Jamie Dimon, because much was made a week or so ago when he made some comments, I think it was at the Analyst Day, Investor Day, shareholder meeting, or whatever it was, that were perceived to be pretty positive, which at the time I was like, nah, I mean, I don't know. It doesn't sound like he is overly bullish, though the market went up that day because financials went up that day and everybody was putting themselves in a pretzel to try and say how positive he sounded. Well, he didn't sound that way today. Here's what Jamie Dimon said. You know, I said there's storm clouds. That's what he said last week. You know, I said there's storm clouds, but I'm going to change it. It's a hurricane. You better brace yourself. J.P. Morgan is bracing ourselves. <clears throat> excuse me. And we're going to be very conservative with our balance sheet. That doesn't sound like a guy who's overly bullish. 
about the environment, Liz, that we are in. And I also think those comments may be contributing to what you are seeing today. Yeah, it certainly sounds like a bit of a pivot from him, whether it was misunderstood last time uh, or, or maybe not a pivot at all. But I think what CEOs need to do and what Jamie is probably doing right is being conservative with their financial statements, being conservative with their guidance. We heard in first quarter earnings season, almost everybody coming out and being conservative. It sounded like everybody was negative and they guided down, but the reality of it is for the second half of the year, earnings probably do need to come down a little bit. The expectations do need to come down a little bit. And as we get this economic data that continues to roll in, some of it's strong, but there's a decent amount of it that has begun to crack and we needed that to happen as well for inflation to cool off. Now, I agree with Steve in the sense that we probably see volatility for the first half of June and maybe a decent portion of June because we're not going to have any new information that calms us down before then. I think we need to get through a couple more Fed meetings. We need to get through a couple more CPI prints. And we really need that GDP print in July to find out whether or not we are actually in a recession. But I think that there is a decent chance in July, once we have some more of that information, that we can relax a little bit and things don't look nearly as dour as they do today. John Nigerian, what are you doing? What are you trading? How are you trading this market right now? Um, I, I'm, uh, I've got an awful lot of cash, Scott, as you know. We've talked about it, so I won't belabor that. Um, I am trading an awful lot of option positions. Um, CRM was one I talked about with our Dominic Chu yesterday. Worked out very nicely, um, mainly because, Scott, I think just like Jim Cramer has said, uh, there are some stocks that have just been hammered. Uh, to the point where you can make a bold call like Jim likes to do and like he's done successfully. Um, so whether it's um, Meta or whether it's Google, in my case it was CRM, I thought after coming down from 330 to 165, that represented a great opportunity. So I put on an option spread in there, I put on stock, both worked out very well. I've now rolled up to the 185, 200 call spread out in July taken off all my stock. But that's the way I'm doing it, Scott. I'm really finding some opportunities, primarily in beaten up stocks. Every once in a while, uh, something on the put side shows up and I'll trade that as well. But I'm really trading. I'm not investing right now. Yeah. I mean, Joe, it's is it harder to be an investor when you when you listen to what Diamond had to say? More of what he said. We've never had QT like this. So you're looking at something that you could be writing history books on for 50 years. Uh, a lot, quote unquote, about quantitative easing programs backfired. What do you take from that? Well, I, I take from that, that that Jamie is observing a volatile, complicated environment in which markets are responding, in my view, to fiscal and policy and monetary policy mistakes that just haven't been corrected. And I really think, you know, everyone keeps saying, well, is there going to be a hard landing? Are we going to pay the price for what the Federal Reserve is doing now? I think we're paying the price right now for what the Federal Reserve didn't do six or nine months ago. So where we are right now in the markets, look, the, the, the market is 3% below the 50-day moving average. If you're bullish, you could take hold on that. You could easily go to that 50-day moving average. That just shows how far away we are. But unless you tell me that the Federal Reserve is going to get far more hawkish 
that China is going to reopen and be a global engine of growth, that the Biden administration is, is finally going to put logic first above all else and temporarily suspend the tariffs. I don't really see what the catalyst is to which you could therefore say we've got an all clear for markets to begin to recapture the losses that we've experienced so far in 2022. So, so Weiss, we're going to give back. I mean, the, the lows, we're, we're a good distance um, from the lows that we had on May 20th, though. I mean, the markets are so volatile, things can change quickly. S&P is 8.5% higher. It's the NASDAQ and the 100 that have really rallied. NAS is up 9.5%. NASDAQ 100 is up, is up 10%. Um, are you going to be looking to trade in and out of, of the market like you've been doing? Or, or at some point, are you just going to do that sideline maneuver that you had before where you had pared back everything in your book? As of a, a week or so ago, you were willing to stick your toe in the water even if you weren't ready to jump in. Yeah, so I'm back to sidelines. Look, if you read through the lines in terms of what Jamie Dimon said, it goes back to what I said a week or two ago, which is that companies are going to take that, are going to have that mentality of preserving cash because they see that we're going into a recession, which I believe we are. And read between the lines further, and you'll see that when he says we're going to watch our balance sheet, to me that means they may not buy back stock. Stock buybacks in 2021 were almost a trillion dollars, 891 billion, I believe it was. That's a fantastic sum, and that helped move the markets higher. So you don't have, or I believe you'll significantly cut back on that share buyback because you're going to need uh, cash on your balance sheet. So, look, we are uh, in a very tough time, and if China does come back online, sure, it'll increase demand, but you know what that'll do? That'll drive inflation much higher. So I just don't see where people are getting it, aside from a tenth of, you know, a basis point or whatever it was in a decline in some inflation measures that is coming down. I drive around, and I fill up my gas, my tank with gas, and it's 20% higher than it was two weeks ago. Guess what? Crude oil goes into everything. It may not go into making to growing a tomato, but it sure goes into transporting a tomato. Well, it's not so like the transportation gonna, costs, the input costs. It's, it's not yeah. like inflation is going to start rolling over in, in certain areas like at the pump. Correct. In other areas it might, but in the, at the pump it's not. In fact, prices are expected to even go higher than they are now. Look, we, Steve, we just need to see inflation stabilize, right? Let's not confuse uh, or, or at least um, peak Let's not uh, confuse peak with go down, because right. I think everybody who is out there saying inflation's peaked, inflation's peaked, I don't know that in the same sentence they're saying, and it's going to roll over real hard. Maybe they believe that, and, and the proof is in the pudding yet, but I, I don't know. We, we're yet to see that. But even if it peaks, you still have the ongoing increased cost to consumers and to industrials. And that's going to be the issue. So, yeah, you might get a momentary respite, a respite and maybe even a bounce like we got last week in the indices. But it'll be short lived because you're coming into the quarterly reports and margins are going to get crushed. And the ones that survived and the ones that engaged in pure folly like a like a Macy's and raising estimates. I mean, that's ill advised. They're going to have to retract that, as we've seen so many times. They're not going to be an island of price stability and consumer demand 
with the lower to mid-level consumer. Just not going to happen. Luxury, yeah, they'll still, still do okay, but that's a separate class of people. And that's sometimes the bubble we live in, you know, on the show and, and with people that come on. It's not the real world. Yeah. Uh, let's bring in our headliner now. Uh, Dubrovko Lakos, he's the global head of equity macro research, J.P. Morgan. It's been a while. Welcome back. Thanks, God. Good to see you. You as well. Your headline today is market internals point to an extremely bearish setup. However, you have a 4,900 price target on the S&P. You still have earnings at $230. You say valuations are getting increasingly more attractive. Multiples have already adjusted to rising rates. I mean, that doesn't sound like your narrative is extremely bearish. So where's the disconnect? No, I don't, I don't see a big disconnect. You know, when I basically look at the fact that investors are paying an arm and a leg for defensive stocks, uh, that just tells me that positioning is very bearish. And I would be basically looking to the other side. Uh, that just tells me that sentiment is very negative, tells me that position is, is very negative, and people are basically positioned for recession. Our base case is this, this is not going to be a recession in the next 12 months. That's our house view. And so we think from that angle, the portfolios are wrong-footed. I mean, I don't want to put you in a difficult spot because, um, you know, you probably see you might see Jamie in the cafeteria from time to time and he may wander by your office and vice versa. Um, but what do you make of, of he sounds like somebody who would not have a forty nine hundred price target on the S&P, nor that earnings were going to hold up to the degree at which you do, nor that he thinks valuations are all of that attractive now and that maybe we've adjusted to rising rates because he talks about one of the principal reasons for his worry is Fed tightening and never having had QT like this, quote, end quote. Yeah, so I think Jamie says, right, there's a storm coming. We don't know if it's a mild storm or if it's a severe storm. I think the market is already discounting and pricing in something more than a mild storm, and we don't think it's a severe storm. So, so. Again, 4,900, that's our year-end price target. Between now and then, that's seven months. A lot can happen. We need to see what happens on inflation side. We need to see if the Fed goes restrictive or, or if they pause somewhere around neutral rates, in which case positioning being so bearish, I think you're set up for a potential reversal. Why? That's what I'm trying to get my arms around. Why? When, when everything seems to suggest, as, as Steve Weiss said as well, we're in a very difficult environment. And the unknowns... I would make an argument skew to the negative rather than the positives. I mean, could there be an unknown positive coming out of the war in Ukraine? Sure. But the other uh, unknowns skew negative, don't they? No, I would actually argue the opposite way. I think that a lot of the unknowns, most of the unknowns are there. I think the, you know, the, the backdrop has basically gotten hit from all sides from basically just about every angle. And so I think the big unknowns here is really, do we have some form of, you know, I don't know, further escalation on, in, you know, in, on the Ukraine side where, I don't know, Russia decides to, you know, completely put, put a halt on natural gas and then Europe goes into recession. That's an unknown, that's a tail risk. It's not our base case. Uh, another unknown could be, could we see more hedge funds going basically belly up that were riding the tech wave? That's an unknown, but I think it's very hard to put a base case on those. So we generally, when we look at the economy and when we sort of look at the, the current backdrop, are we going into a slowdown? Yes. Are certain parts of the economy on the good side going to go into recession? Yes. Arithmetically, they have to. But I think the broader backdrop, to me, doesn't suggest a full-fledged recession. It suggests, at most, a technical recession. 
And I think the market is pricing in a pretty, pretty heavy dose of negatives already. And so that's why I would almost be asking the other side of the uh, the other side of the question. Hmm. Okay, that's fair. Um, And you also see this is going to be a point of contention, too, for some. You see a cyclical growth bounce. So you think that that let's just talk growth like tech. You think tech stocks have re-rated if you if you want to use that terminology enough? So um, you you mean derated, I imagine, right? Yes, yes. Uh, But I mean, they have re-rated too, lower. (laughs) Okay. yes. So, look, I think there's a little bit of a confusion here when you sort of look at the street sentiment. People, everybody just goes immediately to assuming recession. And to me, this is less about recession. This is more of what I call equity duration cleansing. We basically entered this historic rate pivot. We just simply an S&P 500 index that had too much duration bias, long duration bias. And so we've been generally arguing for rotation from long duration to short duration assets. On the short duration, for instance, you have energy. Uh, and I think we're, we're pretty far along that process. And so I think the index sensitivity to rates, I think, will be diminishing because a lot of there's been already a pretty substantial uh, adjustment done on the long duration side. So the market has gone to basically price again from early cycle, immediately late cycle playbook. And, and in my opinion, anything short of a recession late cycle playbook is just wrong. So I think we need to be open minded about the fact that we go back to mid cycle, mid cycle, you basically see both cyclicals, traditional cyclicals, as as well as tech bounce before eventually go back into some form of defensive growth trade. Mm. So that's 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 where I just think the market has basically ran ahead too fast. It's definitely run ahead. Um, Whether it's too fast or not, it's going to be interesting to watch. Joe, you have a question for Dubrovko? I, I certainly do. Dubrovko, good to see you. So I think you're talking about a very large sector rotation uh, within the equity market where a lot of the current leaders uh, should be sold off and we be, should be going out and buying the laggards. Can we be doing that now without knowing whether or not inflation is going to be arrested? Do you have any confidence that inflation will be arrested to make that rotational trade? So again, rotation for us is from long duration to short duration. So from tech to energy, I think if inflation stays at an elevated level, I think the energy, the commodity trades, I think they actually continue to do just fine. And again, our base case is this is not a recession and we're not going to have significant demand destruction. So we think that that side of the equation, I think, holds. Tech, on the other hand, has derated quite a lot. And so I think sensitivity now, of these long duration equities like tech to rates, I just think it's lower. And so that's why here I think you need to see inflation accelerate even further from the current levels, and you need to see rates go a lot higher, I think, for there to be a lot more carnage. So that's why I think the question is where are sort of expectations and sort of what's, what, you know, how, how, how much further do you go from the current level? And I think a, a lot is already in the price. I think a lot is in the expectation. And there's been already a pretty substantial uh, adjustment. And that's why sort of when you look at defensive versus cyclical, the, the multiple spread between defensive stocks and cyclical stocks, it's at 98th percentile. Why would you want to be in defensive stocks? I mean, even if you go into recession, the last stocks that are holding up tend to roll over. And if you're not going in recession, which is our base case, back to mid-cycle playbook, defensive, I think, is going to be used as a source of funding for other parts of the market. Well, it, it's, and so it, I just think the positioning is too skewed to the, to the negative side. Lastly, I mean, it's interesting you say that. And to play off of that, I, I saw a downgrade today of utilities to underweight at Jeffries. And I thought of that line in your note where you talk about defensive stocks having valuation risk. But in terms of rotation, I mean, there are some who say, and I know you like energy, as you just said, as the best risk reward. But there are some who, who say, 
you know, that's the last group that's yet to, to be hit hard and that eventually they're going to come after that and that, you know, that's just it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when you don't think so. Oh, so so could could there be some tactical profit taking? Absolutely. But I'll say a few things. We as a house estimate that by 2030, you need about one point two, one point three trillion dollars in oil and gas capex for oil and gas demand and supply to balance out on the supply side. Nothing is being done. Nothing, nothing. Valuation wise, the sector hasn't gone up. The entire move up in energy has been in lockstep with earnings. Multiple is a nine and a half. So could there be some profit taking? Possibly, absolutely. But I think the sector remains in a very good spot. And so I would be buying on pullbacks, especially for the energy complex. Great to see you again. Uh, better yet, it's great to get your perspective and your point of view, Dubrovko. We'll see you soon. Thanks for having me. Yeah, that's Dubrovko Lakos over at J.P. Morgan. We have more big guests coming up on the half today. We have a first on CNBC interview today with the Delta CEO at Bastion. The airline just raised its outlook. We'll talk about that moving forward. Plus, famed commodities trader Mark Fisher gives his take on what's happening and the best ways to play it right now. Is it nat gas over oil, oil over nat gas, all the above? He'll tell us in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Delta shares are down today, even though the company gave new guidance. Let's get to Phil LeBeau with a first on CNBC interview with that company's CEO. Phil, down about 5% as I send this to you. What have you done for me lately, Scott? That's what the, the market is basically saying when it comes to the airline stocks. They're all under pressure today. Let's bring in Ed Bastian, CEO of Delta Airlines, joining us from LaGuardia Airport from the new terminal, Ed. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but I first want to talk to you about the guidance uh, that you released this morning. You talked about it at the Bernstein conference. Uh, what are you seeing as you look at the market heading into the summer? Demand is phenomenally strong. First of all, it's great to be with you, Phil. Uh, demand is phenomenally strong, and the guidance that we provided this morning indicated that in the current second quarter that we're in, we expect our 
revenues to be fully restored to where they were in the June quarter of 2019, despite the fact that we're only going to have about 82% of our available seats for sale during that same market. So that level of, of demand continues to grow as we look into the uh, third quarter and beyond. And for us, it's necessary because we also see rising fuel prices being a real cost concern. Ed, last weekend was not the best one that Delta has ever had for a Memorial Day weekend. I think you canceled a little over 700 flights. Uh, you had weather issues. You had staffing issues. And I understand you guys have already said, hey, we're drawing back our schedule a little bit in the summertime so that we've got a little more slack in the system so that we're not so tightly scheduled. Yet you have to wonder if travelers, whether it's Delta, whether it's another airline, are looking at the industry right now and saying, how much confidence can I have that I'm not going to run into one of these issues somewhere down the road this summer because there's so many people who are flying and it's so tight on the staffing? Well, I can only speak for Delta, and customers can absolutely have great confidence as they travel on Delta. We've been the most reliable airline by a good measure over the pandemic. The reason for that is we've not put more resources and more capacity ahead of our capabilities. So we've put the reliability of our service ahead of the opportunity to go chase demand throughout the pandemic. And you can look at each of the airlines, they, they, they tended to do things differently during the course of the pandemic. Uh, we added capacity coming into the spring. Memorial Day was the first full test of it. And we did see with some, some challenges. It wasn't just challenges on staffing. And we've had, we had some of those, even though we've hired 15,000 people uh, since the start of last year. We also had some weather issues in New York as well as in South Florida. We had some ATC delays. It was a com confluence of things. But the bottom line is, is that that's not acceptable for us. It's not acceptable for our employees or our customers. And we've took out some of the planned growth that we had into the summer. We're going to keep essentially our, our current level of operations intact throughout the summer. We're not going to grow at all because the reliability of the product that we're providing the customer is more important than, again, chasing that last dollar of revenue. Ed, the domestic air airfare, the average for the industry right now, coming close to $400 a ticket. Uh, do you see them peaking this summer, or is it likely that we could see it continuing to move a little bit higher as we head into the fall? Well, there's two things driving that. Uh, one is fuel prices, and we are also uh, seeing fuel prices that are up 75% over where they were in 2019. So part of, part of the increase in pricing is definitely due to the higher cost of providing the product. But the second thing is just the demand. Uh, we need to keep price points at a level that we still have seats available for sale. So the high level of demand coupled with a high level of, of cost is driving probably about a 25 to 30 percent increase in overall fares this summer from where we sit, what we're selling right now. Uh, we'll see what the future holds. We'll see what happens to fuel prices. We'll see what happens to demand. I think the demand picture and outlook going forward will continue to be quite strong. Uh, we're seeing that in new markets as we open uh, international borders. Uh, and there's, there's no sign of, of any impact on consumer pullback. Even at these relatively higher uh, fare levels, customers are prioritizing air travel. They're getting out of goods and they're moving into services. You remember our Capital Markets Day at the end of December, we talked about that was a phenomenon we thought was going to happen. Indeed, it is happening. So our consumers are saving and they have the, the cash for those higher airfares, and we're, we're pleased to see them. Quickly, Ed, you're joining us from your new terminal at LaGuardia. I know you were waiting a while for it finally to be open. It's open now. Where's the next leg of growth for you in the New York, the tri-state area there, where you guys already lead the market? You've got about 26% market share. Where's the next leg of growth when you look at services and flights out of New York? 
Well, we have we have a lot of opportunities still here to grow in New York. One of the reasons that we're so pleased to be opening this new facility, it's been five years in the making, as you mentioned, is the fact that we can start bringing some bigger aircraft in. We can bring different types of service levels to this, this marketplace. Uh, they're now building new runways here, so the runway uh, slot position will, will stay relatively the same, but we're going to give more options for people to travel to different destinations on larger aircraft. Ed, we appreciate you joining us today. Enjoy the new terminal. I know you were anxious. Last time I talked to you, you were anxious to get there to see the final uh, product. And I, I know from talking with people who are there, it's gorgeous. And I know you'll uh, make the most of it. Ed Bastian, CEO of Delta Airlines, joining us today from the new terminal at LaGuardia. Scott, I will send it back to you. Uh, you know what's interesting, Scott? All of the airlines have essentially raised their guidance for the second quarter. And yet, you look at the stocks, they continue to trade you know, somewhere. They're not Thank close you. to the 52-week highs, not close to the 52-week lows. They're just kind of middling around. They're not doing much. Yeah, well, they had already moved a, a, a decent amount, too, in anticipation of what was going to be a strong yeah. other side of the pandemic and demand this summer. Phil, thank you. Our thanks to Ed as well. Up next, the you ETFs bet. to watch on the first trading day of a new month. And still ahead, legendary energy trader Mark Fisher. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. And welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani. It's a confusing moment. As we enter June, fund flows are all over the map. What are retail investors trading now? Let's talk with Anthony Denier. He's the CEO of Weeble. Anthony, the most traded ETF on your platform and just everywhere right now is the ultra short QQQ. That's a symbol SQQQ. Three times the inverse of the S&P 500 on a daily basis now. Why have retail investors suddenly embraced these leverage and inverse ETFs, particularly on the NASDAQ 100? Uh, there's a few reasons for that, Bob. Uh, most notably, traditionally SPY, very broad base, was the ETF of choice for retail investors. Now with the volatility that we're seeing, we're seeing these retail investors utilize the inverse and the leverage ETFs to get access to more 
uh, beta to the stock as it starts trading and the markets start moving. Now, NDX 100 is the most leveraged sector within those group of sectors. So they, they go towards the Qs and the SQs because of their leverage and their inverse. Yeah, so it, you've told me that the active trader is still very active on your yep. platform. But you said the fair weather trader is gone. What, what do you mean by that? I mean, I know it's been a rough year for the retail investors. Mm -hmm. The average assets under management on your platform has gone from 5,000 per trader to 3,000. Right. So that's a big change here. What are you and other trading platforms doing to try to keep investors on the platforms? That's right. Um, there were a lot of new investors that came to this market over the past several years. A lot of them have been losing funds and walking away until they see some sort of normalcy back to markets. Active traders are still very active, utilizing tools like the ETFs, like the SQQs. What I think you're going to see from retail platforms like Webull is you're going to see us start moving towards more uh, regular deposits, reinvestment programs, and eventually more passive investment platforms catered to investors that don't want to be so active and don't want to have their nose in the phone all day long. Passive investing platforms. It looks like the retail traders starting to grow up a little bit. A little bit. Now, we're going to have much more on what retail investors have been doing coming up with Anthony on ETF Edge at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Plus, learn how retail brokers are diversifying into passive investing and even payment systems. Also joining Anthony, Nicholas Colas. He's the co-founder of Datatrek, who will update us on ETF flows and give us his outlook on earnings in the second half. All on ETFEdge.cnbc.com. Halftime will return with Mark Fisher right after this. Here's our CNBC News update at this hour. On this first day of hurricane season, White House officials are launching a new effort to minimize storm damage. They're announcing a new initiative to modernize building codes. The codes provide updated design and construction guidelines that will make communities more resilient when hurricanes and other natural disasters strike. A jury is into its third day of deliberations in the six-week trial involving actors Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Depp is suing his ex-wife for defamation for making claims of domestic abuse. Heard filed a counterclaim after Depp's lawyer called her claims a hoax. And don't look for the king of rock and roll at your Las Vegas wedding. Elvis Presley impersonators have long been a staple at such events. But the company that licenses Presley's name and image have ordered chapel operators to cease and desist. That could result in a big financial hit. The Las Vegas wedding industry currently generates $2 billion per year, much of that from those Elvis-themed ceremonies. Scott, back to you. Seema, thank you very much. That's Seema Modi. Marco Kalanovic, J.P. Morgan, literally out with a new note just moments ago, and we wanted to bring you the headlines as we have it uh, in our hands right now. He maintains his positive view. Uh, so he's really not changing his view uh, at all as you enter a new month. Uh, he says, despite the steep sell-off, we believe that markets will recover year-to-date losses and result in a broadly unchanged year. This is now an out-of-consensus bullish view with most strategists now negative. Joe? Uh, actually, Liz, Liz Young, uh, says there will be no recession, says the war in Eastern Europe is a significant risk for the cycle, but will likely converge to a settled solution in the second half. What do you make of Marco Kalanovic? Maybe contrarian at this point, but he's sticking to his guns. Yeah, no, I'm with him and I'm with Dubrovko from before. If you just think about the targets that they have, it sounds crazy from here because it would be 20 percent upside 
from here by the end of the year, but it would result in about a 3% year overall. And just for the month of May alone, we had a 12 percentage point swing. So I don't think it's wild to think that we could see some upside for the second half of the year that gets us to a 3% return. And the first half has been so bad, it would take a lot of another set of really bad news to make things that much worse in the next few months. Weiss, I'll just let you have the, the last word on it since I, I, I'm sure you have a, a different perspective than probably Liz and probably Dubrovko and probably Marco Kalanovic. Yeah, first of all, whatever he's drinking, get me some of that. Uh, but he's not the only <laughs> look, one who's drinking I, I, it, Steve, I think so a, maybe you should break out a can of it. Exactly. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look for it right now. I'm going to email him. Look, I think it's a possibility. I'd assign a 10 to 20 percent probability to it. The question is from what level, and I think the level goes lower. But in order for that to happen, what you're going to have to see is the Fed tightening really take effect and really drive down inflation to the extent that it can. Because without that, the Fed's not taking its foot off the accelerator. But as soon as the Fed does, as soon as that news is appropriate for them to do so, then the market's going to explode to the upside. Conceivably, you can be flat or down 10 percent into the last quarter, mm -hmm. and then the Fed makes that announcement, and the market trades up 30 percent in a matter of weeks. So it's not entirely out of the question, but that's not how I'm positioning now. May position for that later on in a number of months, but it's way too soon to make that call from okay. my standpoint. All right. Again, the headline, maintain our positive view. May is a template for the year. Record dispersion provides opportunities. Marco Kalanovic, J.P. Morgan dropping that note just moments ago. Crude oil is coming off its sixth straight month of gains. One star energy trader says Nat Gas remains the better trade. Let's bring him in. Mark Fisher, he is the CEO of M. BF Trading. It's good to see you again, Fish. Welcome back. Hey, Scott. How are you? I'm good, thanks. You, you have really been, I think, more fixated on natural gas as the more beneficial trade than oil uh, for a while since the last, I don't know, you know, many months, at least the last few times that we've had a conversation about it. It seems like nat gas is the place where you're always focused. Why? Just because I think it's just been a better risk-reward trade. I mean, I think Crude oil has gone between you know, 95 and 115, 120, and that gas has gone basically straight up from five to nine, you know, and just risk reward wise, it just it just it just fits us better. And, and it still remains that way, even with a move, as, as we said, a near double from five to nine. I think, yeah, I think that between now and October till the winter starts, you know, the winter season starts. The perception is going to go ahead and be, you know, fear of what's going to happen this winter, which is what's driving all this fear and perception of reality, not maybe reality. So between now and October, you know, it's, it's every dip has to be bought and not guess. Well, every dip you know, needs once to be bought. Once it starts, well. then, it become, then it becomes more tricky. But between now and October, people are going to be afraid of winter, which is going to drive the price of natural gas even higher. I mean, I, I've had some people suggest to me uh, including one recently, a, a, a very well-known commodities investor, I'll, I'll just leave it at that, suggests that nat gas could go to 20 bucks. And they told me to ask you about what you think. Can nat gas go to 20 bucks? It's a number. How high is high? I have no idea. But you, if you ask Joe or John Nigerian, you go broke trying to pick how high is high or how low is low. You know, so. But let me ask you this way, then, if you don't want to entertain that one, um, does that seem outlandish to you that nat gas could actually go? Just even if it's not 20, let's say it's 15. I mean, just anywhere up in that realm, because that would be a shocker for a lot of people. 
well, not gas is definitely it's definitely going to trade double digits, right? The question is how much how much the marketplace is going to demand the price to go up in order to move three hundred thousand contracts from July, August, and September to the winter months of December, January, February, and March, because the index funds have to, uh, and everyone else is going to have to buy the winter before the winter starts. And the, my question is, who's going to sell the winter at eight dollars and sixty cents? If you're right, the market can go down two, three dollars. If you're wrong and it's a bad winter, the market can rally ten, fifteen dollars. I mean, look what happened last year in you know in 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 Europe in with TTF. So again, is out fifteen dollars out of the ballpark? No, it's twenty dollars in the realm of reality. Yes. But I'm, I'm, I'm talking about more. I, I like to trade time frames. So I think you got to be long between now and October 10th, October 5th. To me, it's a relatively easy trade. Of course, now that I said this again, I'll say I'll probably be dead wrong. But I think it's you know as long as you can handle the volatility, you know you can. The, it seems to me it'd be a pretty smooth ride between now and October that NAC gas is going to keep going up. See, I mean, every time you say now that I said it, I'm going to be dead wrong. And the the problem with that is that you've been dead right that you've been calling for this move in natural gas every time that we've had you on, and it has gone in the direction that you have said it, it's going to go. I mean, think, think what's happening here in natural gas. We're going ahead and we're exporting more of it, right, to, to help Europe satisfy its problem with Russia. And we may be creating our own shortage here while we go ahead and, you know, solve their problem. And that's what's really happening. And, and by doing this, Think about this. If you're a speculator or if you're a producer, right, and producers have basically been shut out of the market because obviously you get penalized if you hedge forward. Um, but a speculator, what's the edge in selling that gas here for at, at January at 850? Are you going to make two bucks? Yeah, probably, maybe if, the, if it's a bad winter, but if, it, if it's a good winter. But if it's a bad winter in terms of, you know, being cold and everything, you could be out $10, $15. Are you going to take that risk reward on? I mean, I don't know what the decision tree looks like for most people, but the anticipation of the winter is what's driving prices. Mm. Just like last month, Scott, gasoline went up 35% before, this, before the season even started, right? Now we're in the gasoline season. Let's see what happens. But the, the fear of a shortage because we've had certain shortages, is driving these prices pre, pre, the, the, pre the season. Natural gas is a winter commodity, right? The summer, yes, but it's more, it, at least here domestically, it's a winter commodity. Between but, now and the winter, people can be afraid to sell anything. Yeah, yeah, no doubt about that, um, especially if they hold your view. Let's do this. Let's take a quick break. Uh, bear with me for a couple minutes, Fish. We'll come back with Mark Fisher. More with him next. We have more with Mark Fisher, the CEO of MBF Trading. Joe has a question for you, uh, Mark. But, Joe, before you ask it, I want to ask you a question. And that is, if you believe what Mark is saying about his directional call on on natural gas, but you're not sitting at home trading natural gas futures contracts, what would you do? How would you do it? Through what equities? SWN and CNX. Those so, are probably the four best ways to get exposure to natural gas. I didn't hear your audio. And on also one A. I, I didn't hear your audio on the first answer you said. And if I didn't, I'm betting that our viewers didn't either. Which one did you say first? Okay. RRC, SWN, EQT, CNX, One Oak, and Chenier, CQP, or LNG. Oh, I got gotcha. you. Those and, are the ways to play it. Okay, good stuff. Uh, Range Resources, by the way, I think was a, a, a Mark Fisher name uh, for a, a while. 
Uh, okay, what's your question for Fish? Mark, real quick, just draw the distinction, if you would, between the ability or the mechanism to fluctuate supplies of oil. We have an SPR, we have OPEC, whether or not it works or not, and the inability to do that on the natural gas side. There's no the storage capacity in natural gas, Joe, as you know, is, is much, much more limited than it is in oil. And obviously, when you have excess natural gas, you have to flare it and everything else. So, again, natural gas, it also gets landlocked. It, 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 you just can't transport it because you need, okay. you need LNG terminals, you need LNG shipping. It, it's not as easy as a commodity to move around as oil is. And that's why you get, you know, the, the moves in natural gas are much more dramatic than they are in, in, in WTI. But again, Joe mentioned, Joe, you mentioned RRC, SWN, Sky. I know we've talked about those before. Um, but I hate to do this. And Joe, you know, I, I don't really like making short-term calls. But I'm going to give, uh, Joe, I'll, I'll, give you I'll give you my opinion. Maybe you tell me, because, you know, we worked together for so many years. Two things. The next best trade to make in, in natural gas and the whole energy complex is going to be to buy the market 36 to 48 hours, trading hours, after, God willing, there's a ceasefire between Russia and Ukraine. Because you know what's going to happen. Everyone's going to go ahead and sell everything, every commodity, because they're going to think, you know, will be. And, and again, that's going to be the best entry point, I think, in the next three years. Because what's going to happen then is people are going to realize Russia's not coming back to the market. BPX on mobile, the, the, the capitalization needed to, for Russia is not coming back. I don't think the sanctions will be released. But that will be the next best entry point which I'll probably, be, again, be wrong about. And, you know, the topic, Joe, of good news, bad action, when the winter finally comes, if we do have a bad winter and prices and supply gets drawn down and prices fail to, you know, keep moving up, that good news, bad action is probably when the whole moves over, at least temporarily. So, I, you know, I'm trying to give you, Joe, what do you think? Am I, am I out of my mind? Probably. Don't answer that because you know I am. But what do you think? No, I, I'll answer I'll answer it real quick, but I think that's where the buy the dip mentality has been transferred from the equities market to the commodities market. And you've stated that with us in prior appearances at the beginning of the year. So, Mark, we're going to leave it there. I appreciate your time as always. We'll check back in with you. See where we uh, see where we go. That's Mark Fisher joining us there. John's unusual activity is coming up next. All right, John Najarian, unusual. What do you see today? All right, Scott. Uh, real estate, of course, uh, not going to do uh, extremely well uh, in a rising rate environment. So the IYR, they're buying puts in there at the 95 strike in June. So those puts are about two and a half weeks into the future, Scott. I bought those. Second one, Snap. This one's a bullish upside call for the two-week out, basically, the June 10th expiring um, 15 calls. They bought about 7,000 of those very quickly, and I joined in on this one to the bullish side. Lastly, EQT. Uh, we were talking with Fish about natural gas. This is the biggest in the U.S. Nat gas EQT, uh, 2,600 of the August 50 calls, and I bought uh, August calls as well on this one, Scott. Okay, good stuff. Yeah, we saw NatGas move to the highs of the day uh, during our conversation with uh, Mark Fisher, CEQT, there as well. Final trades are next. I'll see you in a few hours on Overtime. Josh Brown will be with me, Nancy Davis. We've got the Chewy CEO after earnings, GameStop earnings as well. The stock that started it all. 
So we'll see what happens, and I'll see you on overtime, 4 o'clock Eastern time. Liz Young, final trade. Ready for Steve Young to shake his head at me on this one, but financials, I think that there is a possibility for a cyclical bounce, and this is a good entry point to get in for it. Wow, okay, big call. Steve Weiss. <laughs> I like financials, Liz. Uh, I'm short the TLT. I put that on because I think yields continue to rise. So that'll let me play in that. All right. Dr. J. Weekly 4750 puts in eBay right at the money. Scott downside bet. Okay, good stuff. And Joe Terranova. A little bit of a sell off in healthcare. Take advantage of it. Eli Lilly, a name I think you can own. Okay, uh, stock, as uh, Joe just said, the sell-off in healthcare, that's uh, down about 1.5%. Again, after the bell, I'm going to see you. Josh Brown will be with me, Nancy Davis, too. And we'll see what uh, June has in store for the markets. That does it for me. I'll see you then. Exchanges now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.